welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge, huge guest, someone I'm a massive fan of, someone who also puts out my band's records, Laura Balance of the band Super Chunk and of the record institution merch records more on that in a second but first if you would like to get in touch with me there is an email address turn out a punk podcast at gmail.com it is checked by my brother who also runs a facebook page facebook.com slash turned out a punk tristan abraham who is also the show producer guest booker extraordinaire and uh just all around swell guy i love him very deeply thank you tristan for all your help but you can write that email address or you can write to the Facebook page and Tristan will respond to you and get in touch with me and then we will communicate that way. You can also find me on social media at left for damien If you would like to support the podcast, the best way of doing that is by subscribing to it, rating it, telling all your friends about it, and just believing in it. And speaking of believing in it, Thank you to Vans for believing in this podcast. Uh, Vans, House of Vans, came on board with this podcast a while back. Really, you know, just said, just do what you do. Just don't lose money on it. And, you know, not saying that I can't lose money on it, because believe me, I'm still finding ways to lose money on it. But they make it a little easier not to lose money on it, uh, because they are, uh, of course, supporting this thing and just saying, do what you do. So that's great. I get to book whoever I want to book. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much to them. I'm also going to be going to some House of Vans that, uh, events that are coming up this summer. You haven't been to a House of Vans event. I'm not just saying it because they sponsor this podcast, uh, and I've been to a bunch of these events. I'm saying it because I have been to a bunch of these events, and they are unbelievably fun. They are super good times, and, yeah, I cannot wait for some this summer. So hopefully I will see you at some this summer. Check out vans.com for more information. Google House of Vans. You'll see lots of cool photos. Lots of wild, weird photos. Last year, last year I got to, I got to interview Fletcher and Craig Satari at the same damn time. What a world. What a world. All right. Uh, I guess that's it. Oh, I should, I should get into some show notes because there are some things that are going on right now. If you have noticed some of the early episodes of footnotes are slowly disappearing. That is because I've noticed on iTunes that I can only really list 300 podcasts, which means some of the early episodes of the actual podcast are disappearing. And so I've begun, you know, getting rid of some of the older episodes of Turn Out of Punk footnotes. They will exist as part of the new Patreon thing, Chris O'Toole and I are still doing footnotes. Don't worry. Uh, as you may have noticed, there's also a new podcast, the Footnotes Super Show, which will be coming out once a month. And it's Chris O'Toole and I and, and a bunch of other guests coming in and just talking about just everything. But there will still be Turned Out of Punk footnotes episodes about each episode, dissecting each episode. They will be coming out, but they will be coming out behind this whole Patreon thing that is coming together and it's going to be announced. I think next week, I think I'm going to do it next week. It's all coming together. I got toys. I got friggin' toys to, you know, uh, you know, action figures, but like they're, they're still pretty cool. Pretty cool. Anyway, more information on that next week. Uh, but that is what's going on around here. So if you're looking for some of those older footnotes, don't worry. 
they're not gone forever. They're just, you know, and they're going to be all going soon. So <laughs> download them now uh, or just wait and support the Patreon. Either way, uh, there's going to be other stuff on the Patreon thing. It's not just that stuff. But anyway, we'll get into all that next week because we got to talk about this week. Today on the show, Laura from Super Chunk. Now, Laura is someone that I was a huge fan of as someone who's a fan of Super Chunk and someone who's a fan of Merge for a very long time. Years ago, as we get into it on this podcast, I actually met her. And once I met her, I'm like, oh my gosh, she's even cooler in person. And now, as a band on the label, I can say, yeah, she's fucking cool as shit. And it's amazing to get to talk to her and get to nerd out with her and just just punish her about uh, all the stuff I like to nerd out with people about. Neon Christ, you know, what other... Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, that's a spoiler because you're going to hear about it in a second, but you know, a little bit, a bit of an appetizer, but what's to come? Uh, well, that's it. I'm not going to blather on anymore. I don't think there's any real notes to get to, uh, but, uh, that's it. All right. So sit back, relax and enjoy Laura Balance on Turned Out a Punk. <laughs> Laura, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, thanks for having me. I'm a little well, nervous. Well, I, I, I'm nervous too. I really am because as I, <laughs> as I've told you before, you uh, are someone that I've been a huge fan of for a very long time. Uh, I respect the the crap out of your you know business label side of things, but I've also looked up to you as a rocker for a very long time. And as I told you last time I saw you, you are kind of one of the first people to ever hire me, granted unpaid, but like as an intern in the music industry to do merch for Super Chunk one time. <laughs> you know, I totally forgot that that was you. Well, don't, I don't but blame you. Once you said it, <laughs> once you said it, I was like, oh my God, yes, I remember that. <laughs> And I, I love that it was you. <laughs> I, I think it's, I, I'm glad it was like, it feels like, you know, I'd always wanted to be on merge records. So now it just feels like everything has been leading up to this. It's like that book of prayer for own meanie, where it's just like the whole life in sequence has been leading to, to this podcast, Laura, because from that <laughs> merch job till now. That's hilarious. Um, but I got to start this off before we get to, you know, the culmination of what I'm sure is going to be your onstage career and as well as the culmination of my career when we meet at the London Garage all those years later. But we got to start this off the way I start them all off, which is how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Um, well, let's see. I'm sure it had to be my big sister, her record collection. Um, she is three years older than me, and we were living in Atlanta, and she she was an avid record, record collector. And, I mean, she was into all kinds of stuff. Like, I remember, you know, the first Styx record that I ever heard was also thanks to her. Um, but she got into punk rock records or like, maybe it wasn't really punk. I don't know. Like, I can't remember exactly which record she had. 
Was it kind of like new wave stuff, I guess? I guess it was probably more more new wave stuff. You know, it's funny how like when I try to think about what her records were, I'm like, I know she had that Sticks record. <laughs> Apparently, I was really focused on that. <laughs> um, but I guess okay. When I really, really remember first getting interested in punk rock was okay. I mentioned I lived in Atlanta, mm-hmm. and it in Atlanta in the. I guess it was early 80s or maybe even the late 70s. Ted Turner started cable television, basically, in Atlanta. And I, it, or that's the way I, I perceived it. No, I've um, heard that, too. I've and, definitely heard that. And so he was desperate, desperately looking for programming all the time. And we, we had cable, and I had access to all this crazy stuff that they they would get played sort of over and over again. And one of the things I remember coming across was um, a live concert of Adam and the Ants playing on a set that looked like a pirate ship. And I think I was like 14 or maybe 13, and it was one of the most exciting things I had ever <laughs> seen in my life. <laughs> I think it was the first time I felt sexual. <laughs> you know, like that I felt like I was sort of turned on and I didn't know what, what it was. Um, and that's probably my first real, real exposure to some form of punk rock, you know? Um, Absolutely. Well, he was punk. Adam, Adam, the answer definitely like a punk band. Yes. Um, and, and yeah, that got me into it. And then my best friend who I met in middle school, her older brother also, he really had a punk rock record collection um, that we listened to all the time. And that's, you know, where I first heard X and Husker Du. Um, and then we started going, I think it was probably his idea that, that we started going to punk rock shows with him. And um, the first punk rock show... Am I going too fast? No, this is, believe me, <laughs> don't worry. I've got a lot of follow-up questions. I'm just letting you do okay. the groundwork. Okay. Um, the The first punk rock show I went to was um, at the Metroplex in Atlanta, and it was um, the Bad Brains with Neon Christ opening. What and a show! I know, I know. Well, it was sort of wasted on me though, because I was standing there just going like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> like <laughs> I did not understand and it sounded terrible and I couldn't make sense of it. You know, mm-hmm. um, it was, I think as a first punk rock show, you know, it, it was really, it, it blew my mind, but also like I didn't totally get it. Had you been to any other concerts prior to that? Like period? I think I had been to one concert. It's hard for me to remember which of these two was my first concert. Either this one I was just telling you about, or I went to see Prince and the Revolution Whoa. on the Purple Rain tour. Whoa. Um, good, good, good. It, Man, one-two punch. <laughs> I know, I know. They were great. Um, and these were my first two shows I went to, but I don't remember which was first. Um, 
and that was that was very different <laughs> from the bad thing. <laughs> Did you like? Were you aware at that time? Um, like, you know, you'd seen Adam and the ants and then, you know, you're going to see the bad brains and neon Christ. Were you aware that there's like this wide swath that's all falling under the same term or were you like, were they just kind of like completely at this point disconnected worlds to you? They seemed disconnected to me. And like, I think probably I didn't go to that bad Brains show until I was like 15. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had had more exposure to the different varieties of punk rock, you know, on records by that point. But, but, and like, I think I still liked Adam and the Ants, but I, I recognized that there were, there were these different varieties of punk rock that like some people thought were cool and other people, and, and they might think that what Adam and the Ants was kind of like soft, you know, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. wimpy. Mm-hmm. Or Ponzi. Yeah. Darby Crash got shit when he got into Adam and the Ants. Yeah. Yeah. I also, of course, then at some point, like, MTV came into it. And there were all those things that you saw on MTV early on that, that I was totally into also. Um, like, I really did appreciate Duran Duran as well. Mm-hmm. But that, not punk rock. They dressed funny. Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. What no, would you were, say? No, I think they were. Like, I think that's like, to me, that's, that. you know, that's, you know, like the, the, the good Charlotte type thing that came out of like the last sort of big punk explosion. Like they were definitely its most populous form of it. But like at the same time, they are 100% like, you know, like they were, you need those big bands to get popular to kind of like draw people in. Yeah. I guess so. Were you like, were but, you, but sorry, go on. No, go ahead. I was going to say, were you, were there other kids in your school that were getting into the stuff too? Or were you kind of like, you know, alone? Was it like a popular thing at the time? It was not a popular thing. It was a certain subset. That's of what I thought. People. Yeah. <laughs> but also it's not like we all like, I don't know. I feel like, um, in my high school, there were like, I can think of like four kids that were punk rock or five or six, even in Atlanta. And at that time, mm-hmm. like it wasn't like I, we, I had a, there was a big group of people that I hung out with at school that were into the same things. There were a few kids that also went to the Metroplex. Um, but that was it. It's amazing to think of that Atlanta punk scene that you're talking about. Like you come out of it, uh, the future singer of Allison Chains comes out of it. The uh, David Cross comes out of it, and RuPaul comes out of it. Mm-hmm. RuPaul actually went to the same high school I did. Really? Yes, but I he was not there at this. I think he dropped out the year that I started there, or he had graduated. But I think for some reason that he dropped out because he was busy with other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Did you know David Cross back then? Because David Cross is in like one of the first Super Chunks videos too, right? I did not know David Cross back then. He was in one of our videos. It was not one of our first videos though. That, that, I don't know. 
Yeah, what video is he in? Fuck, I can picture the video in my mind, but I, now I can't hear the song in my head. It's the one with Janine Garofalo. That's too. right. That's right. I don't. I don't know what song either. Have you seen please that? Please don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> please and please don't ask me to name all our albums in order either, because I forgot. <laughs> uh, have you ever seen that video online of David Cross uh, hanging out with RuPaul's band back in the day with the U-Hauls? No, I gotta find that. If you look up RuPaul David Cross on YouTube, it comes up. All right, I will have to do that. It's a good, it's a good deep dig from there. Uh, so where'd you kind of go, you know, from going to this first show or like, you know, the first or second show, depending if Prince happened first or second, but where'd you kind of go from there? Were you like, were the, you meeting these other kids with people playing in bands or? Um, we were going to shows and meeting other kids there. Um, and usually I would go with my friend Dia and we'd, we, you know, we were underage, but that didn't matter. Though I don't even know if they sold alcohol at the Metroplex, but somehow, you know, it didn't matter how old you were. You could go in. Um, and there were definitely also times where we would go to the Metroplex and just hang out outside in the parking lot and just talk to people or just, I feel like I was mostly just sitting there listening to people talk. Um, and we met, you know, just all different kinds of people. And, and I remember like there, there were, there were skins, there were mods, there were, there were all the different sort of fashion divisions of punk, but everybody hung out together because there weren't enough there weren't enough of us for there to be like rivalries between these different gangs, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that, that I heard about later. It, you know, in different cities, I guess there were enough that like the skins didn't like the mods. Or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, you know, there were, there were black skinheads too, which may have, I didn't, you know, I'm sure that wasn't unique to Atlanta. No, but it just seems like Atlanta, like from what you're describing, like, I don't know, was a fairly unified scene. Like there was like, you know, and, I, and I've heard that from other people I've talked to from there that it was like, yeah, like the, the art kids would hang out with the goth kids, would hang out with the skinhead kids, would hang out with the, the hardcore kids, would hang out, like everyone would just kind of hang out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was talking to somebody, this is sort of, sort of related but sort of not um i think um the race dynamics in atlanta too played a role in that that kind of openness or that togetherness in that like in atlanta for a long time there's been like it's more equal mm -hmm. and so i grew up while i was there feeling really like very well integrated. Of course, I, I had no idea at the time. I took it for granted. Um, and since I moved away from there, I have felt like like there's this thing missing in my life, and it's that I am I am not surrounded by people of other colors as much. You know, um, even though I live in Durham, which has you know it's a pretty diverse place. Uh, 
there's more of a societal divide or something, mm-hmm. um, a culture, cultural divide. Um, but anyway, I feel like Atlanta somehow like people are better meshed together and that played out in the punk rock scene. Yeah. I, I, it feels like, I don't know, Atlanta feels like a, a pretty, you know, coming from Canada, obviously not knowing, but like, it feels like that's almost like a, like a, like a, like the fourth big city in America. It is. Um, and is it really like, I think the actually? traffic is, the traffic is worse there than anywhere. Yeah. No, I've heard that that is like the, uh, the United all the States. highways converge there, right? Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I've, I've, I've been stuck I, in that I traffic. think it's worse than LA for sure. Ugh. That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, like what were some of the other bands? Cause like RuPaul and the U-Hauls, um, and, and Neon Christ, but what were some of the other bands that were happening at the time or some of the bands you were into? Um, you know, it's, I was trying to remember the other day there were there. And I really cannot remember the names of any of the local, like Atlanta bands. Um, Mostly, I was impressed by bands from out of town that came through. Um, and, like, I can't even, there was some, there's this guy I dated even, his, his I, I think his name was Billy Bob. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he had a band, and I cannot remember what it was called. Like, I really can't, like, my memory is so bad. You're going to run into this a lot with me where I'm just like, I don't know. Um, well, it's not your fault. They weren't memorable. But, like that's not, that, that can't well, hold that against no. you. No, it's true. That's <laughs> true. But, but I did like neon Christ. I was really into them and I do remember them partly maybe because I have, I bought a seven inch <laughs> with two, a four sided seven inch. Um, a double. I guess oh, they did the double seven inch reissue oh. of the fir- of the single, right? Uh, what? They did a double seven inch reissue of the of the seven inches. I don't know. I mean, are you telling me I have a reissue? I think so. I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news, but the original was just a single <laughs> seven inch. Well, I guess maybe I have the reissue if it came out in the eighties. I think I it did know. come out. I think it came out in eighty nine. Um, the reissue. No, um, no, I have one that I got when I was in high school, so I don't know what it is. Maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm remembering something else. It's got like a drawing on the on the front. I think. Of, I, then you must have the original uh, one because they did a reissue. Gas yeah, they, I think that sounds like the cover of the original seven inch, which is a single seven inch. And Laura, I don't. Okay. Now I can be the bearer of good news for you. That that investment has appreciated. You know, like you have definitely done well by that record over uh, the course of time. That is a very valuable record now. If I haven't destroyed it by <laughs> playing it. <laughs> well, well, love. There's also two sleeve variations. There's a yellow sleeve and a white sleeve for it. I think mine is a white sleeve. I don't know which is rare, though, unfortunately. That's where the end of my knowledge is with when it comes to that single. Oh, it's, I'm not selling it. Don't, it doesn't matter. 
they are an amazing that that single is one of the I don't know, to me, top 25 American hardcore records of seven inches. Like, I love that single so much. It's, well, I was going to say, it's not very, it's not like very accomplished, really. Like, you know, it's, it's not very smooth (laughs) 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 or, or like, or well executed necessarily, you know, like, but it's, it's, it definitely is a reflection of the time, Mm -hmm. which I, I really like about it. I think that's also like, that's what's so wonderful about punk and hardcore at that time is that like, I don't know, like uh, immediacy and ferociousness took sometimes the place of uh skill, which definitely appeals to me. Yeah, me too. What? And that, that is something that I feel like allowed me to be in a band at all mm. is that like, I was, punk rock is about, you know, being able, being allowed to try, even if you aren't that good at something, um, and people accepting you and supporting that. Absolutely. Well, I was going to say, when did you, like, you know, you obviously talked about your big sister having records as well, but, like, did you grow up in a musical household? Like, were people playing instruments? No, people weren't really playing instruments in my house. We had a piano in the house, and my sister and I messed with that sometimes, but neither of my parents played instruments. Um, uh, My my sister played the piano some. She and I apparently were both sent to a piano lesson at one point (laughs) when I was pretty little, Yeah, and she took to it, and I didn't, and so they they gave up on me. so I have zero musical training. Um, but my grandmother went, went to Juilliard um, and was she could play piano beautifully and trained as an opera singer. Oh, wow. Um, but didn't, didn't, follow, didn't follow any kind of career after that. She got married and had kids, and that was that. Was that. So when did you start actually like, you know, playing and when was that, what, how old were you when you started playing? But I mean, um, outside of the piano. It was, oh, I wouldn't call what I did playing with the piano. Um, <laughs> uh, I, it was like a couple of years before Super Chunk started when Mac and I were working at Peppers together and he asked me to play bass with him and his friend Jonathan and that's when I first started playing um and it was dreadful it was really bad um because I really had no idea what I was doing and I still really don't yeah but that's not it's crazy yeah but then we that's what we just established it's more important actually uh the desire to play like I can't I can't imagine how many people you inspired to play it's true. That's the good thing. That's the good thing about it. So did you, like, before, you know, you started playing um, bass, did you, had you tried singing in a band? Had you ever had any inclination to be in a band prior to that? No. I never had any interest at all. I have always uh, tried to avoid being the center of attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and... That was something I really, I had to overcome in the process of 
you know, learning to play and playing on stage. Um, I mean, I, I was probably in Super Chunk five years before I was comfortable with being up there. Do you remember the first time you ever played on stage? Um, I remember, let's see, I, I remember the first house party where we played. Yeah. Um, and I felt like it, this was before I really realized that I had such a problem with this, but I, I, I had, um, I guess it's like a panic attack. Um, mm. I, I would have this also if I had to like give any sort of presentation at school, um, where I would get tunnel vision and feel like I couldn't breathe. And the same thing happened um, pl- when I started playing, you know, when just getting up in front of everybody, setting up in front of everybody and getting ready to start playing. Suddenly I'm like, oh, shit, <laughs> I can't see and I can't hear and, and I, I, I can't breathe. This this is this is not going to be easy. Mm-hmm. Um it, it, I don't know. It, it's, it, it really terrified me at first playing and, and whenever I would screw up, I would just for, for the first, I don't know, year, if, if I screwed up, I would just stop because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know. I was just like, there's no way for me to start again because I'm lost Mm -hmm. because I've just lost my place and I'm done. Um, and Mac, Mac had to really pound it into me. Like just, even if you're playing the wrong notes, just keep playing something. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It took a long time to get past that. It, it's funny you brought up setting up in front of the audience. I find that sometimes the most disarming. Like I find even if you're just playing the music, like that's, I don't know, a defensive shield, but I find like going up there and having to set up the gear while everyone's just staring. That mm-hmm. is one of those unnerving things for me. It is. It's not. It's not my favorite because no. they're looking at you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're expecting something. Yeah, you're like, stop staring at me. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when there's one of those curtains. The rare, the rare occasion where there's a curtain and you can set up your stuff with, and be like in this weird little room. Oh yeah, and then they, and then it's like the the play begins type vibe. I love that too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, no. we've only had that. I think that yeah. part is funny too, though. That part is also weird because then the, the curtain goes up, and then you're suddenly assaulted with your feelings of embarrassment. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Rather than being able to slowly wade your way in, yeah, and, you know, really warm a, up. It's really a no-win situation at that uh, yeah. point. <laughs> uh, so, um, I guess, like going back, um, did you? When did you kind of move away from Atlanta? Um, let's see, I graduated in 1986, so it was 1985, um, yeah, the summer of 1985, my parents had gotten divorced, and, um, my mom was interested in this horrible man, and she did not know what to do with herself not being married to someone. Mm-hmm. I think she felt, uh, and she felt lost. Um, and she 
wanted to move to the town where this man lived in order to be, be able to pursue him more aggressively. <laughs> so, which um, I was, you know, I did not like him mm-hmm. and I was against it very much. And um, I begged to be left in Atlanta with my best friend and her parents offered that I could live with them and finish high school at the high school I had gone to. Um, but my mom wouldn't have it. Uh, and so my brother and I moved to Raleigh with her. Um, which in my mind at the time was, you know, really a step down. Yeah. Um, because I, you know, Atlanta is a much bigger city and I felt like the punk rock scene was more, um, you know, there was more going on. Uh, and Raleigh just felt really like a backwater to me in my mind, you know, until I got here, mm-hmm. um, until I got to Raleigh. Um, and then it, I don't know, like it was hard at first and I was very depressed about it and I felt like much more, um, in a spotlight, you know, like, like much more vulnerable if I, uh, dressed in the manner I was accustomed to, you know, I felt more like there, I was under attack. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, it wasn't long. Like once I was in high, once I went to school again, um, it was, it didn't take long before I met a bunch of kids in, in Raleigh who were very welcoming and it was even more like, well, it was, it was very much a scene where it wasn't just the punk rockers that hung out together. It was the hippies too. All the freaks hung together because, <laughs> because there was, there were even fewer of us, you know, yeah, yeah. we had to stick together. And, and I, you know, in hindsight, I am super grateful to have moved back to North Carolina um, because I there's so many people here. You know, I, I live now in Durham, but like Raleigh, Chapel Hill and Durham are, are very close together. And they're all kind of like back then and through to today, they are all kind of one community, really. Um, and I'm just there's so many great people here that I am so grateful to have met. And you know, it's, it, I am where I am right now doing what I do because of that move Mm -hmm. that, that I resisted so fiercely. And I, you know, I, I wonder sometimes like what would have happened? What would I be doing right now if I had stayed in Atlanta? No telling. Well, yeah, because it seems like, you know, I, and I have the same, we, I just had the exact same conversation with Jonah from fucked up the other night, like just how, you know, I feel like myself, I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have made myself do the things that fucked up made me do. And I, I, I like it forced me to take risks. I don't think I would have been willing to take on my own. And, you know, from what you've been mm-hmm. saying about being someone who doesn't necessarily run towards the spotlight, would it have been harder to kind of find your own space in a, in a city like Atlanta than it was in a city like Raleigh. Yeah. Well, 
I felt like in Atlanta, I I I never would have joined a band for mm. sure because it there there were more people who actually knew how to play instruments and um, you know they didn't need to ask someone to play with them who who didn't have any musical talent whatsoever and or much less any instruments or an amp um so you know there wasn't that that kind of recruiting going on that i was aware of um whereas in raleigh it felt like um anyone could be recruited you know and and like it didn't matter it didn't matter that you couldn't play that would just make it more interesting. And it wasn't like anybody was thinking that the, the, the band was going to last. It was just something fun to do on a Saturday night to like get together and play. Not, not the beginning of a career like it's treated now. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, who would have thought, right? Like who would have thought it would lead to, you know, the creation of a genre. Like what you were doing. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wild. <laughs> what was it like, you know, you mentioned, you know, you had this preconceived notion of what the scene was going to be like before you got there. But what was it actually like when you got there? Like who were some of the bands that were kind of playing or do you remember any of the bands or like what the shows were like there versus Atlanta? Um, the sh- the, well, the venues were smaller um, and – the um so it was more intimate you know um and and but i feel like there were a lot more in my memory there were a lot more shows that were really packed you know with where just sold out punk rock shows and and i think that R- raleigh became a stop in between dc and atlanta where um a lot of bands would stop and play. So I feel like, I feel like Red Cross came through a bunch of times, which was awesome. Um, definitely X. I saw them a bunch of times. Sonic Youth stopped through here a bunch of times. Um, and locally, COC was playing. Um, no labels. They, by the time I moved here, I think they were already broken up. Okay. Or I didn't see them. Um, the ugly Americans were still playing, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, and there was a band called days of, that I really liked. Okay. Or their vibe. Sorry, what was their vibe? Um, it was more, it was less hardcore and more um, melodic. Um, and let's see. Ugh. Honor Roll? Honor Roll, you know, they're from Richmond. They, yet yeah, they came and played fairly frequently. Um, and also we would go sometimes go up to Richmond for shows. Actually, I, I 
pretty often we'd go up to Richmond for shows. If I think about how many times I ended up in Richmond in this, in what must have been the space of like two years, it was a lot. Um, the first time I saw the Butthole Surfers was in Richmond, and that blew my mind. That was the first time I'd ever seen something like that that felt so, um, it felt really dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, they, I, I've never, I didn't get to see them at that point, but it just all the footage you see of them at that point, like that seems to be the best way to describe it. Like it really feels like it would have been something completely unhinged. Yeah, yeah, it it scared me. Yeah, it scared me, and, and I was I don't just watching know, it videos. wasn't like, yeah, <laughs> and I don't, I don't know if I was scared for, I don't think I was scared for myself. It was more like I was scared for them and anybody within their reach. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I guess if you're and also up. like, yeah, Gore were playing a lot. Mm-hmm. I guess it's it must have started around that same time. Um, which, which is you know, there's uh, that whole thing. It's so stupid. <laughs> but I think <laughs> it was enter- it was entertaining at first, as you know, this performance art. Um. <laughs> Would they like play with punk bands too, right? Like it would be like in the context of like a, a like a normal show that they'd be doing this ridiculous, oh, yeah. incredible shtick. Yes. Yes. And it was much less messy at first. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta have a fan base before you ruin all their clothes. I know. When if you're the opener, yeah. you can't really destroy the entire venue and then have the headliner go on. No, it's bad form. Totally bad form. It's very bad form. You will not be invited back. Were the slush puppies going at this point too? I feel like I did see them a couple times. Though that may have been reunions. Because um, the seven inch, I think, comes so, out in eighty seven, right? Like the Evil Doers Beware comp. Oh, evil! I, evil! I do not. Oh, that's do not. I live. Um, <laughs> that's uh, That, what year did that come out? Yeah, I think 87 is when, that sounds about right. Um, Yeah, Slush Puppies weren't really active anymore at that point. Um, But, yeah, that, like, so, and Wax, that band, which is a double, two W's, (laughs) I think they did that on purpose. You can't say double W. I always it's call them wax, right? We'll wax. Yeah. So they weren't playing when I was in high school. It wasn't until I was in, like, had gone to college that they actually were playing because uh, Mac was away. When I was in my senior year of high school is when he started he had moved to New York City to go to Columbia University, and he he went to school for one or two years, and then took a year off, and lived in Chapel. And that's when I met him. So I hadn't I hadn't really had any exposure to him when I was in high school still. Um, but I had met other people from Chapel Hill. And it's funny how each, like, 
to me, each town, the people from each town had a, had different kind of punk rock styles, you know, like mm. it felt like the people from Chapel Hill were less likely to have a punk rock uniform kind of thing, you know, to have a look or whatever. Yeah. Um, and the Raleigh scene was more kind of hardcore and people dressed it, dressed up, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, and there weren't really, there wasn't much going on in Durham. I didn't, I didn't know any people from Durham really. Yeah. I can't think of too many bands from Durham, but I'm sure I'm forgetting someone, but off the top of my head. But, but apparently before I moved here, there were a lot of punk, punk rock shows at, um, some old church in Durham that were legendary, but I didn't, I didn't see any of them. Yeah. And I guess Charlotte also probably had its own unique thing too, right? Like I would imagine. Yeah. Yes. It was like the anti scene. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, I think there was a a milestone was open way back then too. I think. Yeah. I've been told that's the CBGBs of the South. Yes. When we played there, I think yep. that's what they told us. But yeah, what a one of the few kind of like storied venues that's left. But I, you know, I wonder. I don't know if the milestone is still in the place where it originally was, or if it's moved. Oh, I, I'm I gotta, thinking, I gotta look that up. Yeah, maybe unless it moved recently. I thought it was, but mind you, now that I'm saying that, it was like probably about ten years ago that we played there. So <laughs> I should maybe mm-hmm. check if it moved yeah. too. Did you know Brian Walsby when he was in Raleigh before he was in Wax? Yes. And stuff too. Yeah, he hung out with all I guess he moved down because of all the COC connection. Yep. Um and yeah, he hung out there was a house that I guess Reed Mullen's parents had bought. Reed was the drummer in COC. Um and it was like it was a big hangout house where every it was a big house and a bunch of people lived in it and that's where I would go hang out on weekends. Um, and you know, just sit around. That's what we did. We sat around. (laughs) (laughs) Was it like a straight edgy kind of scene or you guys drinking or, or was it, you know, I didn't drink and I didn't do drugs, but other people, some other people did. You know, it's funny. I think in that house it may have been a little more straight edge. Um, it varied by – it varied mm-hmm. according to who you were dealing, dealing with. But there were – there was another house on Ash Avenue um, that was more of the drug drug house <laughs> 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 that I would also hang out at sometimes. And um, – I, you know, I was, I still, I wasn't, I wasn't partying. I wasn't doing drugs. I would, but I would hang out with these people and they, they like to take acid a lot. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I felt like there were people that always needed help <laughs> during those episodes. And, and I feel like I, I would, I would hang out with them and kind of babysit and, that I would sometimes get, I like, I don't know what you call it, like a contact Hi. trip. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
where where there were like there was one night in particular that I remember where um I had been hanging out with with these guys and they had been tripping and I was it was late it was like three three in the morning four in the morning and I was driving back to my mom's house um and I look up and that there's this thing like the size of a water tower that looks like a giant spider walking across over all the trees and you know I was just like oh, shit <laughs> you know what is that <laughs> some more of the world shit um, you're describing yeah it was kind of like that um, and uh, I just carried on driving to my mom's house and went to bed um, and uh, you know, I have no explanation whatsoever for what I saw. Um, so it, I mean, it must have just been because I was around people that were taking acid. Yeah. I have no other explanation. Maybe it was a giant War of the Worlds thing. We survived it. We survived so. it. Yeah. We beat it. We beat it somehow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when you do, you know, when you reconnect with Mac and you guys eventually, you know, obviously started playing together, but before that, like, um, Merge was a record label by before that, right? No, we started, I mean, Super Chunk well, and Merge pretty much started at the same time. Because there's like the, there's like three records, like Super Chunk, the Super Chunk 7-inch is like the fourth, right? The Chunk 7-inch? Yes. Yes. Um, so, the first few things were bands that Mac had been in that he had, you know, that, that were, had been recorded and that he, he, he wanted to get out there. Um, and they weren't for the most part, were not really active anymore. Like I can't remember what was actually first. Was it a bricks? cassette it's a bricks tape is um, the first release yeah yeah um that was him and some friends from columbia um and they played some more after that came out but not a lot um and the wax seven inch um i think it's a cassette first the wax there's a wax tape oh yeah that's right wax tape um they they were i think they were still playing but not a lot um and the um but but yeah super chunk and merge like basically i think when they started may have been a couple months apart but you know as soon as super chunk started we were definitely not ready to record anything well because the, um you, you had another band before right like metal pitcher i think puts out a seven inch we before. had yeah we um we had a band called metal pitcher mac and i played with jeb bishop uh i think he was playing drums um and jeb was also in angels of epistemology and now he's like, he's a, he's a jazz musician. 
Whoa. He's still, he's still playing. There's a lot of people that were um, part of that early scene that like have gone on to do kind of different types of music, but all different types of music. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Hit and Jeb also, um, I don't know if he was like a linguistics PhD or something. He, he did a lot of translation also in multiple language. Him and I think, I think that was, I think he did that too. There was him and another guy, Gary, both did translation. Um, and that's how they made their livings for a while, which I thought, I always thought was really cool. That's awesome. Um, I have yeah. never heard, this is one of the rare times that I've, there's a record that I still have yet to even hear the metal picture seven inch. It's kind of like, it never got reissued, did it? Oh, is it on that? Is there a comp with it on it or no? It might, there might be. It's not great. You don't need to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> you really don't. <laughs> oh, I need to um, hear it. But That's... yeah, there was, there was metal picture and there was also a careful workman is the best safety device, which was the band that with me and Mac and Jonathan Newman. And Jonathan Newman was also, he was the drummer in Slush Puppies. What was the vibe of that band? Um, I think it, that was the band. That was the first band that I was in. So I think that Jonathan played guitar. The rule was we all had to play something that we didn't usually play. Okay. And that for me, that was anything. Um, and Mac played drums. Jonathan played guitar and, and I played bass. Um, And I can't remember who sung. Must have been Mac. Um, and that was that's also not great. <laughs> With all these, and bands? we put. I'm pretty sure we put out a seven inch of that also. Really? Maybe not. I don't, I don't think know. you did. Well, if if you did, I gotta find it because I don't. I don't. I don't. That's one that has completely escaped me. Um, were these huh. bands? sonically different than where, you know, Chunk and ultimately Super Chunk would kind of find itself? Like, were you guys playing with other kind of styles or is it still kind of like, you know, that driving Same. power pop? Same kind of style, I think. Yeah. And why do you think it was Chunk Pretty the one that stuck? That. Sorry, go on. Sorry. Oh, why was Chunk the one that stuck? Um... I don't know. I guess uh, I'm not sure. I think maybe it, it. You know, it's really hard to say. It must. I don't like. I don't have enough experience with this, which is funny to think about, but like, it seems like, cause I've since super chunk formed mm. my third band. That's, that's how many bands I've been in. You know, mm. Mm. I have not really played with other bands, but I think what you do, if you're, if you are, you know, if you want to form a band, you try playing with different people until you find a combination of people that you're like, okay, this works. You know, I can hang out with these people. When we play together, it sounds good ish. Mm -hmm. 
Um, we're going to stick with this one. Um, and maybe that, you know, it, it wasn't, I wasn't at a point where I could make that call, but I think that Mac had decided that like, okay, this, this is pretty good. I'm going to keep playing with these people. Um, which why anyone would have decided that about me at that point, I don't know. But, um, maybe it was just cool to have a girl playing bass in your band at that point. Well, no, but, I, think you, I think you're selling yourself so short there. You're like one of the ultimate iconic bass players to me. Like, I think you're like a killer bass player on stage and you, you know, like it's all about like that ferocity and like, you know, uh, yeah, like I, you're one of my favorite people to watch on stage. You kill it on stage. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, but, but also I think that he had given some recording of us to Gerard Cosloy, who was working at Homestead at the time, Homestead Records, mm-hmm. and Gerard had expressed an interest in the band. And, um, so I think that that was, and, and Mac was back in New York at that point. And, um, I think that was encouraging to him. And then, uh, Gerard quit Homestead and started Matador Records with, um, Chris Lombardi, um, and that, you know, then signed Super Chunk, and that's how that kept us going. You know, one, yeah. I think once, once there was some, uh, once there's that kind of um, affirmation, you're more likely to, you know, keep the, the band going too. And, and that's part of why, I, in, for me, why we started Merge is that there were all these bands that would form and play together for a month or so and then just dissolve here in Raleigh because there just wasn't, there wasn't anywhere to go with it. You know, you could play some shows here, play, play a show in Winston-Salem, maybe you play a show in Charlotte, um, but, but you wouldn't, it wouldn't really, there wasn't um a physical thing you could use to help get yourself shows beyond the borders of our community. Um, and that's why it seemed like a good idea to start a record label and maybe give help, give these bands some longevity and, and an avenue to, to carry on and, and, and be heard in other cities and get opening slots with other bands or whatever. Well, yeah. Cause I was going to say like, what was the, you know, once you sign, you know, you, you, your band signs to Matador, you guys kind of keep merge and, and almost it becomes like a different thing. So was that because you wanted it to be an outlet for other bands or did you always also want to have control, you know, for things of yourself? Cause ultimately you end up leaving Matador and going back to merge. Um, and thankfully um, you did keep merge going because that's what we would do too. But, um, uh, like why was right. it important to kind of keep it going? Well, 
I'm at first we were only doing, you know, we did those cassettes and then we were doing just seven inches mm-hmm. and that seemed like plenty of work to me and, and like all we could handle. Um, because making cassettes is cheap and we were, you know, we, I have a dubbing deck in my house that was the merge records dubbing deck that I made all those cassettes on. Um, I guess there were maybe the wax one we we may have we actually had manufactured. I can't remember now, but like it was cheap to make seven inches. It was cheap to do cassettes, hmm. but the idea of doing a full length album seemed um, too scary because because of the cash outlay and then having to figure out how to promote it enough to actually sell it. Um, whereas seven inches, you could print a 500, seven inches back then and sell them. No problem. Mm-hmm. Cause they were three three dollars, you know, um, people would take a chance. Um, and so when we started, we weren't doing full length records and we weren't doing any kind of serious promotion. It was, it was, um, it was a low layout endeavor. Mm-hmm. And but- so... So it wasn't until Superchunk had been on Matador for a couple records that, and Corey from Touch and Go had gotten in touch with us um, in 1992 about, you know, I basically, I see what you guys are doing down there would you be interested in putting out full length records? I would be willing to manufacture and distribute them for you. Um, and we were psyched, you know, we yeah. were like, yes, let's yeah. do it. Yeah. Um, cause he was taking on the, the risk basically. Um, and we, you know, we didn't have the money to, to do that ourselves. Mm-hmm. But like, did, was Matador not into doing the singles or was it important that you guys could do your own or that you would do your own singles? Um, they did, I think they did a couple singles too, but yeah, it was important for us that we be allowed to continue to do our own singles. Yeah. And even like, I think while we were still on Matador, I think we put out the first Super Chunk singles comp on Merge. Yeah. Tossing Seeds um, comes out in 92, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... You know, we talked to them about it and they didn't mind. It also like what a work ethic Superchunk has, you know, like it's wild to look at like every year there's like a killer record throughout, you know, the 90s. And and there's also like in between those records, like a run of killer singles. Um, It's really about partly, partly about not... um, there wasn't too much uh, thought put into it, you know, mm-hmm. like we, there was hardly a song that we wrote that we did not record. <laughs> 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 you know, there was not a lot of inspection of the material and, and rejection. Yeah. There was mostly like, yep, yep, yep. Here we go. Like, all right, we got this. Um, that's enough. We can record now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and, I, you know, for me, I go back and listen to those early records and I'm like, oh my God, what a heap of shit. 
<laughs> really? You don't like, um, you don't think they have a, I think they have that kind of like you're saying, like they're obviously not as accomplished as you guys would get, but there's just like this energy there. Right. Well, sure. I mean, there's an immediacy, but there's also some songs that, you know, are not great. Um, they didn't need to be on the record, you know? Uh, and, but I guess in order to be that prolific, we had to be, we had to not be discerning. <laughs> and, um, I don't know. It, it was, it, it's fine. It's fine. And, and I'm, you know, I'm sure there are people who love every one of those songs, but, but, uh, there's a lot of songs that like recently we were going through foolish, which is not until 94, a whole five years into our career. And, um, uh, half the songs, at least on there, we did not play live ever for the last, for the last 20 years. Okay. Um, you know, and I'm sure we played some of them live right after we recorded it and definitely on the way to recording it. But, but like, they're just, they're not memorable. And, and I was trying to remember how to play some of them. And really it, I had to, I had to make that song up again. I could not do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. It was not familiar to me. <laughs> Um, when you, when, you know, the band, you know, puts up the chunk single first, uh, and then like, was there a following immediately or did it kind of really start once the, the first LP came out? Um, uh, well, it depends on what you mean. People can't, you know, people were really supportive of each other down here. So yeah. as soon as we started playing, people people would come see us you yeah. know and we would get play it you know we played at i think our first show was at a party for this this printing company called barefoot press that wayne from wax helped start um they asked us to play their their like either it was an anniversary party or or you know a party to celebrate them starting this business um, and there were a ton of people there and that was the first time we ever played. It was awful. Um, but I feel like we never played a show where there weren't people there mm. in, around here. Um, that it's, it was not like a, a luxury you had. If you played in this scene, you would just, everybody would come. Um, even if you were awful, people wanted to come watch <laughs> <laughs> and see what would happen. Um, uh, which makes me think about Erectus Monotone. I haven't, I haven't mentioned them. They were uh, maybe a little, a little bit later, um, but they were one of my favorite local bands from Raleigh. Um, that were, to me, super punk rock because they, I mean, they were, they were different. They were unique to me, and I think a lot of it was. The way Kevin Collins sang, um, and it was so different. He had been in a hardcore band from Winston Salem. Oh, I forget the name of them. Um, oh wait, Kevin, the guy. Wait, uh, wait, Kevin Collins, the guy from Double Negative. 
Yes, yes. Oh, he was in uh, what was his sub- band? Subculture. Yes, he was in Subculture. And then he was in Erectus Monotone. I never made which that was connection he, where he, just where, now. Where he actually sang. Yeah. And it was awesome. Um, Holy. But also part of what made that. <laughs> no, you blew my mind. You... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You just totally. I never made no, that connection. No, I'm glad. I'm, I'm happy to make that connection for you. I know that guy too. And I just never made that connection. I'm... Yeah. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. Um, but Erectus Monotone. The drummer, the original drummer, was so awesome, partly because he was not dependable. <laughs> and it it often felt like everything was about to fall apart because of the way he played. Uh, um and but in a in a good way. It was fascinating. Like I could not look away, you know? It, it, it made the it made their shows so compelling to me. Yeah. Um. And he wasn't like, you know how there's awful drummers where you're just like, oh, th- you know, this is terrible. I can't, I can't stand this. Mm-hmm. But, but he, he just, I don't know. He would keep it together, but just barely. Yeah, and he, he the way he played was super interesting. Yeah, that's what you kind of need. Like you need just enough of a sense of danger. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also, didn't Walsby play in that band too for a second? He did. I think he he replaced Casper. Um, yeah, he played after Casper. Um, and that did that guy Casper play in any other bands or? I'm sure he must have before Erectus Monotone, but I don't remember any of them. Wow, you have just, I, I got to go back and listen to my, I have a couple, uh, I think I have the second single, or maybe it's just that first single they did, but I've got to mm-hmm. go back and re-listen to it. Now that I know it's the same guy from Subculture, that's going to add a whole new dimension to it. Yes. I'll send you some, I'll send you, a, uh, I'll try to send you some links with my favorite Erectus Monotone songs. I would be very stoked to hear that. Yeah, definitely. So at what point did it like merge? Is it when you guys kind of go back there and you're, you're on the label yourself? Like what point did it feel like this is going to be, you know, something that becomes, you know, like a, a career, like becomes something that I, I'm going to put my life energy into. Um, Um, I'd say that by the time we put out our second record on Matador, like by the time No Pocky, No Pocky was so well received, I feel like. That was our second record, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, uh, it it already felt like okay, Super Chunk is a serious concern here. I guess I, you know, I'm going to be doing this for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, of course, you know, it was still it was punk rock. It didn't feel like okay, now 
now I'm going to, I'm going to make my millions and buy a mansion. Yeah. Um, so, so we, by that point we're, you know, seriously touring. Um, it felt like we were on the road half the year. So that kept us, you know, it kept us really busy and, it meant that we didn't have tons of energy to focus on merch. So it, you know, it made sense too, that we were not running a real record label at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, it was good. We, our records were coming out on Matador cause we, we couldn't do all the business stuff, um, and tour like we were. Uh, but what was great about it was that being in super junk, we were, we were traveling all over the place and you know, eventually maybe, maybe not right when no Pocky came out. Eventually we were traveling all over the world. You know, we, when we first went to like the first time we went to Europe, I was, I was amazed to be doing that. Um, and then, you know, eventually we wound up going to Australia and Taiwan and Japan. Um, and then Brazil, um, which was, I don't know, awesome. But anyway, um, we were meeting people everywhere and other bands that, you know, we were making these connections where we would then be able to go, hey, can we put out a seven inch on our label? And they would be like, yeah, cool. And, you know, that's how we met Drive Like Jehu and Rocket from the Crypt and, and, um, the three D's. That's where I first heard about flying nun records was through bands on merge, like three D's being mm-hmm. on merge and stuff. Like it, uh, it almost feels like the, yeah, like a global, a global scene. You kind of are able to build by putting out these records. And we were able to, I think we were able to build that by, by being in a band mm-hmm. and, um, making these connections and sort of in that way, we were able to establish merge as having kind of a reputation even though we didn't we weren't at first putting out full-length records um so by the time our contract with matador was up we um we felt like merge had enough weight the name merge records had enough weight to it that it made sense for us to go ahead and make that jump back to merge and put out our or full-length records on Merge. Um, so I think the the growth of Merge was really helped by Superchunk in that way um, on multiple levels. You know, it, get, it I think it also gave us some legitimacy to be a band that was running a record label. Mm-hmm. Um, it gave the it gave the label more legitimacy in the eyes of other bands. Well, I think it also probably changes the way you govern a label. Like once you've been in a band. Absolutely. I think so. We certainly know a lot more of what we're, what you're doing, you Mm -hmm. know, like Mm -hmm. what, what it means to be in a band and what it means to tour your ass off and why you might get tired of it or why you, you know, might be late to an interview or, or something like that. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a complicated Thing mm-hmm. 
Well, it gives you a level of empathy that I don't think you could have otherwise, right? Like, unless you've been there, how would you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another thing I kind of wanted to know about, like you mentioned earlier, it took you a long time to get comfortable on stage. I think you said four or five years of playing live. Um, mm-hmm. uh, no Pocky comes out within that window. What was that like to still be kind of dealing with stage fright, but then suddenly be in a band where, you know, you're, you're, you're blowing up. Um, uh, let's see. I guess, um, I, well, to start with, like when our first record came out, um, we did a tour with seaweed and, um, geek and super chunk. And it was called the wet behind the ears tour. And, and, uh, which doesn't matter, but, but we, that was my first tour really. And, um, seaweed were from Tacoma, Washington and had driven They were all, they were all, I think in high school still. And they had all the entire band had packed into a pickup truck with a cab on the back and driven across the country to do this tour with us. And, you know, they're these crazy teenage boys. Um, and Aaron Stoffer, the singer, could not stand that I was standing up on stage and acting like I was scared. And he... He would have these pep talks with me um, and basically like threaten me that like, listen, if you, if you don't, if you don't rock out, I'm going to have to like come up there and knock you over or something. You know, uh, like I can't, I can't take it anymore. I, you know, we're the only audience here. There's nobody else coming. There's nothing to be afraid of. You know, it's just us. And, you know, he would say, like, tonight, I want to see you put your foot up on the, on the monitor. <laughs> just give me that. <laughs> and so, like, he coached me. He was really, like, trying really hard to coach me into, like, okay, try this. Maybe it'll be fun. And maybe you'll feel better and more comfortable if you, like, make it into something other than standing there being petrified. Mm. Um, so that was, I mean, he helped me and he like, and watching them too, like they, they were my pogoing inspiration really. Um, playing with them on that tour, I think had a lot to do with, you know, what, my definition of a good show should be mm-hmm. going forward. Um, in that, like for me, it was like not about playing really well. It was about physical, physical engagement. Was that, was, did that, was that helpful? Someone like, you know, kind of like being Vince Lombardi, like, like tough coaching <laughs> style. <laughs> 
Yes, I think it was. I think I needed that. Apparently, I needed that. Um, and and you know, it didn't make it go away. I was still scared, but that I I um, moving around sort of gave me something else to focus on too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Other than the people looking at me, and 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 like I realized, like okay, I'm moving around. I'm not looking at them. I can sort of try to make people disappear, as, you know, and, and as long as I don't screw up and lose my place in the song, then I, I, sh- I can be okay. Um, and yeah, it slowly got better. Well, I was going to say, yeah, cause not that. And it- also, Go on, also just practice made it better, like playing more and more and more and, repetition mm-hmm. playing those songs until you could play them in your sleep makes you feel just a lot better and a lot less like you're going to mess up. And, and, you know, once I got to the point where it was kind of automatic, I felt pretty good about it. Well, yeah, I was going to say, was there like, you know, not that it ever becomes completely natural to be in front of a room full of people staring at you, but like, was there a point where you felt like, I can now let go and enjoy this playing live. Yeah, definitely. Was that, and I don't know exactly, I don't know exactly when it was, mm. but it was, it was definitely after a few rounds of, of intensive touring, mm-hmm. which is, you know, touring like that sucks and it's hard, but then also there is that, there is this beautiful magical thing that happens when you're comfortable playing and when you have a good show that the crowd is giving to you this energy or something like there's this exchange of something that I can't put my finger on that is the thing that all of us performers are addicted to. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's uh No, that's 100% what we're chasing the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't get it all the time, no, but when you, you do, you, no. it's 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 um it's magic. Yeah. 100%. Like obviously you're not touring as much these days, but you do you miss that feeling? I don't tour at all now. Yeah. And I um I I thought I would miss it. And at first I'd maybe did a tiny bit like playing for people was my favorite part mm-hmm. of being in a band. Um, and I miss it a little bit, but mostly I mostly I don't. Cause also most of a lot of the time you feel like a weird, you know, performing monkey. Or I did. I felt like I felt like okay. Now I'm supposed to turn off my brain and go up there and jump jump around, whether I feel like it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, I feel like I'm not doing my job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I started to resent that sometimes. Well, I can relate exactly what you're saying right now. 100%. I bet. <laughs> yeah. 
You know, it definitely does. And, you know, I, I started getting older and my, you know, things were achier and it's harder to like, harder to do all that, the physicality of it. Um, and for me, part of performing is very, you know, it was a physical thing involved uh, abusing my, my neck and my knees. Um, and, and, uh, that part of it and my ears, obviously. Um, and I, yeah, I, I'm glad not to, I'm glad not to do it anymore. Yeah. Uh, um, going back to, you know, to, to before super chunk starts before Nirvana explodes, but I just, I'm always fascinated by what it was like for bands, you know, before and after that kind of happened, like what was, the world super chunk was born into versus the world like you know two years after when sort of the alternative music explosion happens um well it felt like you know going going to chicago and playing to a sold out crowd of 300 people felt huge mm-hmm. in in 1990, yeah. um, that was like, holy crap, you know, we have made it. Yeah. But when we get home, we got to go right back to work at Kinko's and, you know, so we can pay our bills and, and buy some beans. Um, and I guess, you know, when the whole, when the Nirvana thing happened, um, first off, you know, of course we noticed right away that like every, every venue we pulled into, you know, before we sound checked, the sound guy was like playing, Never mind. Um, you just heard it everywhere. Sure, yeah. And this is, and this is pre the internet being a thing. Um, so it wasn't like it wasn't like now when you hear something everywhere. These people had all bought the record <laughs> or taped it from their friend, mm-hmm. um, and uh, were super into it. Like it, and and it was viral in a way that you know back when it was harder for something to be viral because people weren't as connected. Um, so we knew, you know, something was something was up, and um, that's, I guess, you know, as 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 that went on, and they got super big, um, you know, is when major labels started snooping around to the various punk rock bands, hoping that they would be the next Nirvana, mm-hmm. um, and that. I don't know, like, you know, back then we still had this attitude that like, like, okay, so Nirvana did it, but it's not going to work for anybody else. And if you, and bands that went for it, I still had that attitude also of like, you're selling out. Mm -hmm. I don't like you anymore. (laughs) <laughs> because now you're on the lane major label. Um, 
So, so I have to say, when Sonic Youth did it, I was like, okay, I'm, I'll go along. I'll go along with them for this. Just they deserve it. Um, uh, but when when that opportunity was dangled in front of us, we just felt like it wasn't. We knew that like we were not going to be the next Nirvana, and and what we could envision what would have happened to us. Mm-hmm. Um, which is that that system would have chewed us up and spit us out, and we would have been in worse shape than we were before. And so we didn't want to take that chance um, and not have the control that we did. Yeah. You're like one of the few bands that didn't, though. You know, a little bit. Like a lot, like Fugazi didn't. Well, Fugazi didn't, but like they're they're the one. <laughs> you know, they like they get to wear like they they have the whole franchise built around that. You know, but you guys, yeah. you guys didn't. You know, and I think I imagine that was you know dangled in front of you guys in in a very much, if not more real way than it was Fugazi. Hmm. Yeah, I mean. Fugazi pretty much advertised the fact that they wouldn't be interested yeah, in that. We're I wouldn't do it. Like you'd have to just be yeah. like some sort of weird, you know, into some weird sort of re- rejection fetish at a major label to try and call <laughs> it <via> Makai. <laughs> yeah. yeah. True. <laughs> like, but I think, you know, here's your band younger too, right. Than than they were like, yeah, they had already yeah. been, in a couple bands by this point. And yet, you know, there was never, you know, like you didn't, you guys went the other way and, you, and thankfully you did because that's where my band is a home now because of that. But yeah, it, was yeah. it, was well, it hard like to say no to these people at all? Or was it just like, like you're saying you just a complete aversion. Um, I had a complete aversion I think that John, John Morser had been in a band who had gone through that. Yeah. Um, and it was a horrible experience for him and destroyed the band. And he, he he's against it. Um, and I think that I, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not sure what Mac and Jim's mindset was, but we decided, you know, we'd at least like hear them out. Mm-hmm. And so we had, we did go to um, Danny Goldberg's office when we were in LA one time and talked to him um, at his invitation. And for some, like, I, you know, this is another thing. I think I didn't even go in his office. I think I'd, I didn't go along because I don't remember. I don't remember it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, you know, we all pretty easily came to the conclusion that we didn't want to do it. Um, and it, for, which is fortunate that it, it wasn't a fight. Yeah. Cause it seems like even that sort of thing could really fuck up a band. You yeah. know, the, the, yeah. those relationships are delicate enough. If Absolutely. one person feels like their aspirations have been crushed, 
by a bunch of naysayers, that could be that could be pretty pretty much of a bummer. Well, especially because like at the time, you know, like you 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 know, I think you guys were ultimately proven right by history. about what happened to most of these bands, like a lot of your peers at the time that did sign to the major labels, but. Mm-hmm. I imagine at the time it would have felt like, well, maybe this time's going to be different. Like this, like yeah, it's yeah. all blowing up now. We're going to be huge. That's true. Even seaweed did it. Yep, I was. There was a band I was thinking of too because you guys have been on tour with them. Yeah. Um, like very, yeah, I mean it. it go ahead. No, I was just going to say. So, like, you're right. Like, it's just like you know. Obviously, there's more like. I'm sure than just the two, but like you guys in Fugazi are the two that always come to my mind when I'm thinking of bands that, that, that walked away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and when I think about the bands that are, well, especially bands that had longevity after that point, I like, I keep trying to think of someone. Yeah, I know me too. I don't well, know. Rancid a little bit later, but, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, there's not, you know, not Un- undressed. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But, but then also, like, I think you guys also found a way to, like, not opt out completely. Like, you know, you were making videos, you know, like it was, mm-hmm. it was, I don't know, like, I respect the band so much because it was on your own terms, it feels like. Like, mm-hmm. even sonically, like, you know, it, it, you guys are much more just kind of always doing your own thing than it was on a trend at any point. Right. Huh. But. Yeah. I, yeah. People used to say like, you know, why don't you want to be popular? You should sign to a major label or whatever. And, and like, it wasn't that we didn't want to be popular. It's just, we wanted to be comfortable with how we did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we were, we were trying, we were there. We were definitely, we were hoping maybe hyper enough would get played on, on commercial radio, you know, Mm-hmm. That maybe that was, that was, what the world was coming to. That you know, a band that sounded like us on an indie label could maybe get played on the radio. But it turns out, no. Um, well, I think it has happened. Like now. we did a. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you. Yeah, off. I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, but. it's fine. No, I would like we even did a, like a special mix of that song. Mm-hmm. On the advice of Karen Glauber, like who this this person who works in you know in LA works with getting stuff on the radio, um, and and I was I have to say being the naysayer that I am I was I was a little, I was skeptical about that whole thing and I was like that's not that's not gonna happen not with us mm. not with us and our squawky singer <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not gonna happen. Um, but it was worth a try. What well, I think it, it, you know, it didn't happen necessarily for you guys, but like you're saying, like, you know, that sound does eventually find its way on the radio, but it's bands that you've influenced mm-hmm. that are, that, that, yeah. you know, it's never the, it's never the pioneers. It's the ones that come after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you heard the arcade fire, did you think that was going to take? No. Yeah, because I I remember no. seeing them around here before they signed even Emerge, and it was just like I thought they were amazing, but it just that it would become that I had no idea. No, um, there's no way you could anyone could have known. Mm-hmm. You know, like there was definitely there were de- I 
the songs were really catchy Mm -hmm. and the, how, you know, how emotional and raw things felt about them, like made them really exciting. But I never, and, 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 you know, there was, there was definitely a buzz kind of around them at the time. Um, but I never, I had no idea that would translate into hundreds of thousands of records being sold mm-hmm. or, you know, the level of success that they had. I was going to say, like, and you just, it just goes to show you cannot predict. No. You just never know. No. Well, I was going to say actually in on, on that kind of line of thinking then, What's like one band in Merge's history you think that's just kind of like you got a lot of bands that have become, you know, hugely storied and things like that. But like, what's one artist you think that's kind of criminally overlooked or like a record you think that's kind of criminally overlooked? There's a lot of them. Um, I think that the Radar Brothers are a band that are criminally overlooked on Merge. They make the most beautiful records. Um, and there it's, um, I don't know. They're, they're really nice to listen to, you know, and they're, if you, the more time you spend with them, like you hear more and more and the the lyrics are crazy and I don't know, uh, you know, not that that's something that would ever get played on top 40 radio, but, but I don't see see why it it can't be popular um uh i'm surprised nixon never became like a top 40 record the lamb chop oh yeah well i mean that was that's that record is the first one where i think that um we got it got coverage on NPR, which mm-hmm. was a new thing. It was like at the beginning of this thing where NPR started to pay attention to independent music. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they did a piece on that record and we immediately saw this surge in sales, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it played a huge role in, in how, how well that record did. Um, and, I don't know, like in, in my mind at the time, like that was really a huge success. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like but it. it's true. I mean, at the, at this point that record is legend, mm-hmm. you know, it should be like some record that every, every person has to buy at some point in their life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which the neutral milk hotel record and the airplane over the sea is one of those records that I feel like everyone in college has to buy a copy of that record, yeah. you know, <laughs> or at least their friend has to have one. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. And, and, and like uh 69 love songs too. Um, mm-hmm. you know, like in, in obviously arcade fire stuff and, and super junk stuff, but I've always felt that record to me, um, out of all the records, but like, I don't know. That record just always just felt like it just feels so fucking epic. Airplane? No, no. I meant uh, I'm still talking about Nixon. Sorry. Okay. Yes. Okay. Back to Nixon. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. And it's true. 
I don't understand it. Yeah. Lamb chop, lamb chop should be like, I don't know, the Glenn Campbell of today. Yeah. yeah. You know? <laughs> I would much Where prefer to hear that. All the grown-ups are like, oh, I'm just chill. I'm listening to my lamb chop and having some rosé. Yeah. Yeah, well, I I enjoy lamb chop and hash, so I can say that uh, maybe maybe I'll it'll be my my uh, senior years. <laughs> it's that's a good combination too. Yeah, it definitely sure. goes very well together. I gotta say. Um, well, you should, maybe you should try some Radar Brothers with that. I definitely am. I definitely am going to check them out next. So that's you know it's it's an amazing label to be on. Obviously. I'm not just saying this because you're on the show, but I talk, I remember talking to John Reese about, you know, how did, you know, how you guys were the first guys or first, or you labels, the first label to believe in them, you know, back then and stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's super cool to get to finally talk to you like this and nerd out with you, but would you come back at some point, Laura, for a part two? Yes. This is been time. It's been an honor to have you on the show. Thank you again, uh, for being on here. Thank you for having me. That was fun. Thank you, Laura, for coming on the show. And Merge is celebrating a huge anniversary this year down in North Carolina. I will be going down there to celebrate with them as part of this whole uh, giant Merge reunion thing. And I feel... I feel like someone who just luckily married into the family just in time because it is an honor to be on that label, even though we did have a record on that label a few years ago. But I feel now like I'm really part of the Merge family. So I can't wait to go down there and see Lamb Chop. You know, you heard about it right there. Uh, There's a lot of bands, a lot of unbelievable bands on that label. It's going to be a really fun time. I think a lot of the events are sold out already, but check it out now. Find out about tickets. Hopefully I'll see you down there. If not, you know, we'll see you somewhere. See you somewhere. If you're coming around here next week, I'll tell you what you're going to be seeing. And that is Mary Timoney of the band Helium and of the band XX, who have a brand new record on, on Merge, no less. I decided to put them together like this because I thought, oh, what a cool little segue, you know? It's all about the segues here. I turn out a punk sometimes. Uh, Mary will be on the show next week, and I'm beyond stoked to talk to her. I'm a huge fan of all her music. Helium was one of the first bands I ever got to see live. But beyond that, I'm just a fan of talking about DC hardcore with people, and she is someone that goes deep with that DC hardcore. More on that next week. Thank you very much for tuning in to this podcast Please tell all your friends, subscribe to it, rate it, review it, do what you will to it. Um, I don't know why I said that. Uh, Patreon stuff is coming out next week. Thank you, uh, everyone, for listening, and I will uh, see you then. Bye. Oh, go out there and make your own culture. And please sign your organ donor cards. All right. Love you, everyone. Stay safe. Bye.